0: Welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 174. I am your host, Noah Reschetta, and today I'm going to share some thoughts about becoming whatever you already are. As always, keep in mind you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to be a better whatever you already are. So the expression, be whatever you already are, has somewhat become a slogan or the tagline of our online community. And I really like this expression because first of all, I mentioned this in every podcast, right? The idea that you don't need to use these things to become a Buddhist or to be a Buddhist, you can use it to be whatever you already are. And I think when I express it this way, be whatever you already are, it feels like it's an invitation. uh, It's an active process. The invitation is to embrace yourself as you already are. And it has hints of the Buddhist teachings of emptiness, aimlessness, and formlessness. So I want to go into this just a little bit because I think it's a powerful teaching and a powerful mindset to have. In our day-to-day life, this can be a mindset, and it helps us to feel more liberated. But liberated from what? Unsatisfactoriness. You know that feeling that arises when we want things to be other than how they are? That is the classic formula or recipe for what the Buddhist perspective of suffering is. Suffering, anguish, unsatisfactoriness, it's that thing that arises when we want things to be other than how they are. And I think it's important to explore this in the context of how we see ourselves. How often do we experience the thought I wish I was other than how I am. I think we're bombarded with messaging from the very moment we're born that starts to tell us that you need to be other than how you are. Think about this from the perspective of a baby crying and the parent is trying to do everything to stop the baby from crying. Now, I understand that crying is a natural thing and and it can arise at times as an indicator of needing something. Like a baby needs food, it's going to cry till it gets food. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with crying. All I'm saying is the messaging of uh, how you are right now, I want you to be different than how you are. That is a message that kind of seeps through uh, as a form of conditioning from the very earliest of stages. You know, growing up, you have toddlers that are making messes or they're just being naturally curious and doing what kids do and we are wanting them to not do that thing that they are doing i know this from the perspective of a parent Um, and then it hits big in the years as we start to develop i remember as a school bus driver i could see a very clear distinction that was starting to happen between the elementary kids and the middle school kids and the high school kids because i would pick up all three of these routes and you, you see it there's this change that starts to happen where Kids are very comfortable in their skin, and then that comfort starts to go away as they get older, and suddenly they're not so comfortable in their skin. And I think it's because they start playing that game unintentionally, the game of who am I? How should I be? Um, you know, what should I say? I don't want to look silly. And, and they start to craft this uh, persona almost of who they think they should be, and that's different than who they are. And then, of course, this continues through high school, through college. We see it in the workplace, any form of interaction with other human beings, where we, we start to really believe that if we were other than how we are, things would probably be better. And that, for me, that is the uh, Buddhist teaching of suffering. There are different types of suffering. This would fall, for me, under the category of all-pervasive suffering. It's that nagging feeling that something's just not right, and I and I don't feel comfortable in my own skin, because there's this feeling somewhere deep down inside that says you're not exactly how you should be yet. You know, you might be able to get there. Companies know this, and they feed off of that. You 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 know this. Here's how you are, but here's how you could be if you owned our product, or if you drove this kind of a car, or if you use this kind of a uh, watch or whatever it is. And that's the the tactic that's used to ultimately sell us stuff that we don't need but somehow we desperately want because we do sort of feel that each new thing is getting us closer to finally being that version of ourselves that's going to be better than this current version. I think we see this when it comes to our thoughts and emotions. Societal norms or upbringing has conditioned us to believe that we should feel a certain way and not feel another way. You may have thoughts that, you know, oh, you're not supposed to think that, or feelings. I'm, I feel anger. Oh, you're not supposed to be angry. You know, in my, in my own experience, in my past, I really struggled with this notion of anger. I thought it was wrong to feel anger. I had been conditioned to believe that I'm supposed to always be nice. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. I'm supposed to not feel anger. I, you know, the, the, the better man in me is the one that doesn't feel anger. But I went through an event that did make me feel anger, and I, I felt a very strong aversion to that anger, and that aversion to the anger only strengthened the, the anger to become hatred. And then I fought the hatred, and the hatred got stronger, and that was a really difficult ordeal. That That's also the stage that led me to discover Buddhism as a form of practice. I really think the key, uh, which we see in the Jataka tales, these are the the stories, the collection of stories, we see this in the story of Sticky Hair Monster and how as a foe or as an enemy, Sticky Hair Monster could not be defeated by aggression or by weapons of any kind. Everything that would be thrown at it would stick to it and only strengthen it. So in the end, the key to defeating that monster was to befriend it and to change the relationship with it and to turn it from an enemy to a friend. And that was the experience that I had with my anger, and at that point with, with hatred. I finally realized that I, I was done fighting with it. I was going to allow myself to feel everything that I was feeling. And in that process, what happened is I defeated it by befriending it. And I thought, I'm so sorry, anger. I've pushed you away all this time. Let's just sit here and, and be angry. And I allowed myself to really experience the full range of what it is to be angry it's kind of like abraham lincoln his quote where he says do i not destroy my enemies when i make them my friends i think it's worth pondering the question what kind of relationship do you have with your thoughts and emotions do you have certain thoughts or certain emotions that you would categorize as enemies versus friends and what would happen if that relationship changed and you befriended all of the thoughts and all of the emotions And to be clear here, I'm not opposed to the idea of change in in the form of like self-improvement. I'm not saying that we should sit by and and not do anything. I think we can absolutely become better versions of whatever we already are. I mentioned that in the podcast every time, but there is a big difference between thinking we have to improve versus thinking we can improve. Maybe instead of self-improvement, we should call it skillfully embracing constant change because that's what's happening, right? We go through life and things are changing. I know for me personally, again, in my own example of day-to-day living, I've had the desire for some time to be a better paragliding pilot. And over the years I have become better, but not because there's something telling me, you're not good enough the way you are, you need to be better. It's not that, it's out of a, a playful curiosity and a desire to enjoy the thing that I enjoy doing. in in a safer way. And I feel compelled to be better at it, not because I have to, but because I can, because why not? And I feel that that's the same perspective I have in my desire to be a better communicator. You know, early on in my marriage, I was not a very good communicator. I think we both, both of us struggled with it, but I had the desire to be a better communicator with my spouse. And over time, I feel that that is an area of my life that I have Improve drastically, and again, not because I I have to, but because I can, because why not? And this is the same with my desire to be a better dad, to be a better whatever it is that I am. And that's why I like to emphasize that at the start of every podcast episode, because Buddhism does end up giving you a lot of tools. It's like having a a toolkit that you can carry with you that ultimately helps you to be a better whatever you already are. And it's not because you have to, it's because why not? I'm here, I'm alive. I'm going through this experience of being a human being. Why not make it uh, a little bit more enjoyable by being a better whatever I already am. When it comes to the notion of self-improvement, it's like Alan Watts would say, trying to improve or fix yourself is like trying to pick yourself up from your own bootstraps. You just can't do it. it. It can't be done. And I think if, there, if there's a notion here that I want to come across clearly is, uh, my problem with the idea of self-improvement is, is that you can try and try, but it's going to be wasted effort and energy if you don't approach this the right way or skillfully. And the reason is because the dilemma we face is that the part of us that is trying to do the fixing is actually the only part of us that needs to be fixed. It's that belief, that deep view that I hold that says, I need to be other than how I already am. And that belief itself is the problem. So the problem isn't necessarily that I need to change. The problem is that I believe that I need to change. And that belief is something that I can examine and I can look at. And for me, the moment I become aware of the thought, Hey, I need to be other than how I am right now, I can pause in that moment and I can get curious. I can open up a sense of curiosity where I say, why, why do I feel that? Where does this belief come from? And then I'll explore it a little bit further. Let's say I did. Let's say I did this or that. And then what happens? What would it be like? And how would that make things better? Or how could it make things worse? And I like to play out the scenario in my head where I explore all the possible consequences, whether they be intended consequences or not intended consequences. And I just like to see where it plays out. And I think open curiosity is the key here. It's not saying I have to be that way, but what if I could be that way? Then what would life be like? And when I've done this, there have been scenarios where I've thought, yeah, uh, with paragliding as an example, I would probably be a lot safer if I became much better at this. And that's what motivated me to go take more advanced courses and to do things that ultimately make this a more enjoyable sport because I understand what's happening. And I've, I've played out the, you know, the various scenarios of what life would be like if I were better at this. I've also done this with other scenarios. I, I've, I've often, uh, daydreamed about what, what would it be like to win the lottery? And through playing this game of curiosity and imagining, well, what, what would it be like? Then what, um, my conclusion at the end of it has been, maybe I wouldn't want to win. I think it could it could introduce a whole bunch of new unintended consequences that I actually wouldn't want in my life. I'm not saying that it's wrong to want to win the lottery. I'm just saying how often do you spend time with examining what would be the unintended consequences of getting what I want? And I think sometimes we just, we don't do that. We we go through life a little bit more habitually conditioned to Just do the thing, whatever the thing is that you're doing without pausing to think, well, wait, why am I doing this? What happens if I do this? That's all I'm saying. So for this mindset to make a little bit more sense, I do think it's important to understand that first of all, change is constant. It's inevitable. So you are always changing and you are always becoming what you already are. And you are constantly comparing the current version of you to the you that you were in the past, whether that be an hour ago, five years ago, or you as a child, I think this can be an important exercise where you examine the you of now versus the you of the past, pick any point in the past, maybe it's me as a child. I would say, at what point did I stop being that old me and became this new me? And I don't think there's really a line that delineates that clearly. It's just the constant change, a constant flow, a continual process of becoming. And in that process of becoming, eventually you start to see a big difference through little bitty, tiny changes. So I do think it's important to entertain that. What are you becoming? You're becoming what you already are. And for me, the practice then is to embrace that constant change, to simply be whatever I already am. And right now you can examine yourself. How are you in this very moment? What emotions are you feeling? What kind of mood are you experiencing? And whatever it is that you're feeling right now, you can lean into it. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm in a bad mood or I'm feeling a bit crappy today. Well, then you can explore that feeling with with open curiosity. I experienced this yesterday, actually. Driving home, my son is on the mountain bike team at school, and they celebrated the end of the season with their team dinner. And I picked up the girls from dance. And I took the three kids with me while my wife is uh, teaching dance at the studio. And I took the kids with me to that dinner and we had dinner. And I was a little overwhelmed with the amount of work that I have on my plate, because I'm leaving next week to Nepal for the the mindfulness trekking thing that I do. And I was trying to arrange the flight schedules of all the participants who are coming with the trekking outfitters so they would know when to pick up at the airport and the time in Nepal versus the time here with that time difference. It meant I had to be doing this while, while at the dinner. So I was a little frustrated sitting at the dinner thinking I'm not fully enjoying the experience of being here because I'm so busy working on all this stuff that needs to be done right now. And this has been compounded over the week with other, other tasks that I have. I had a couple of students from my last course that didn't end up flying. So I'm still trying to tie up those loose ends to get them their first solo flights. And then there's the ongoing management of, of things that happen with the, the U S powered paragliding association that I'm currently running and serving as president of that organization. It's been very, very time consuming. So what I was experiencing yesterday was a deep sense of feeling too busy and overwhelmed with too much stuff on my plate. And here I am sitting at the dinner table, not fully present with that experience because my mind is racing everywhere else, feeling like I've got all these spinning plates that are starting to fall. And that sense of frustration, I noticed it and I could sense how I was feeling. Well then, the event was over. We get in the car and I'm on my phone trying to hurry and send a text message to the, the guy in Nepal. And I know that if I wait too long, it's getting too late there. So I'm trying to be mindful of his time. And while I'm composing this message, my son says, can we go? Are we we ready to go? Are we ready to go? Are we ready? And I just interrupted him with an angry burst where I said, does it look like I'm just sitting here playing a game or do you think that I'm actually busy doing something? We'll go when it's time to go. And I, I could sense the anger and the frustration and how I was expressing myself as I did it. And I saw him like wither back, you know, and kind of back down like, whoa, sorry, didn't mean to um, get too close to this snake. (laughs) That's what it felt like. And I I saw the sadness in his eyes and, and just that sense of feeling like he was in trouble. And in that moment, I was able to think of this, like, how am I feeling right now? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? And it took maybe a minute or two. It's about a 15 minute drive home from where we were. But as I sat there and really processed this, I recognized, I know why I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I recognize why I feel this deep sense of frustration that boiled in that one specific moment. And I I took the the opportunity to talk to my son about it on the drive home and I said, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel bad. It just felt a little overwhelming with all the stuff that I'm trying to do. And then on top of it, The pressure that you were giving me as if I was not paying attention or it just culminated in that moment of frustration. But I want you to know it's, I'm not frustrated at you. I'm frustrated with the amount of stuff that I have that I'm trying to manage right now on my plate. And I was trying to get this message out and I explained why the time difference in Nepal. Essentially what I did is just explain myself. But first I sat there and processed it going in my own mind, what's happening here? Why did that just happen that way? And what I didn't feel was a a sense of frustration. Well, I did for a moment, frustration at myself for feeling that way, but then realizing, well, I don't need to feel that. It it is overwhelming. And somebody who feels overwhelmed tends to do what I just did. That's just what happens. So by explaining it to my son, he felt better because then he understands what's happening. And it gives him permission at some point in the future to probably recognize he'll feel that too. It's just something that humans go through, whether it's the overwhelming stage of parenting a small child, or juggling work, or just lots of emotions that day. It can be so many things, but we all experience that moment of feeling so overwhelmed that um, we get frustrated. So I think that's an important thing to ask ourselves, "How, how am I feeling in this moment? And then explore that with open curiosity, rather than the typical thing we do, which is We immediately categorize, oh, this is something I like. I want to keep feeling this or, oh, this is something I don't like. I'm going to run away from this or distract myself or feel aversion towards it. So there's a a mantra that I like to use a slogan, almost aside from be whatever you already are. Um, I have three expressions, three phases that I like to remind myself of regularly, and they are, there's no one to be, there is nothing to do. And there's nowhere to go and every now and then i'll pause and i'll remind myself there's no one to be i'm just i don't need to be any anyone other than who i am right now there's nothing to do except for what i'm doing and there's nowhere to go there's just here where i already am and i want to share some thoughts around each one of these what they mean for me these expressions the first one is no one to be this expression reminds me of the teachings on emptiness and formlessness It reminds me that I don't have to be anyone else. I get to be me. It's like the Picasso quote where Picasso says, my mother said to me, if you are a soldier, you will become a general. If you are a monk, you will become the Pope. Instead, I was a painter and became Picasso. I've always loved that quote because that is the essence of be whatever you already are and see where that takes you. I think we spend a significant portion of our lives trying to be someone else. And this is natural. You look at people and, and I think people can inspire us and we may want to be like a certain person. I think that's fine. But I do think sometimes we unintentionally cross that line where in the process of wanting to be like someone else, we don't want to be like who we are now. And we almost lose the ability to befriend who we are. We become an enemy of ourselves, And that is not helpful. That's not helpful at all in that process. And again, just to reemphasize, this doesn't mean that we need to be resigned to be what we already are. This is not a passive process where, where I'm just going to sit back and do nothing and, and settle for who I am. It's not that. To me, the, the word be in the be whatever you already are, that's a call to action, to do. I believe it's an active process of constantly being skillful about embracing yourself as you are in this moment. So that's the reminder of there's no one to be, I'm just going to be me. The next one, nothing to do for me, this is a reminder to pause. When I notice a really strong emotion arising, I suddenly feel the need to do something and that's a great time to think, well, maybe there's nothing to do. This is what I was experiencing for a brief moment in the car with my son. And while I expressed my frustration, I didn't continue beyond that because I took that moment to pause and realize there's nothing to do. I don't need to fight this anger I'm feeling. I'm just going to sit with it. I don't need to talk. I don't need to lash out. I'm just going to sit with this for a moment. Remember, things are interdependent and permanent. In other words, things are always changing and everything that we do or don't do affects everything else to some degree. In this present moment, whether I do something Or I do nothing, I am directly affecting the next moment that will arise based on this moment. The Buddha expressed this notion as interdependent co-arising. He said this is because that is, this is not because that is not, this comes to be because that comes to be, and this ceases to be because that ceases to be. That's what I was experiencing in that moment of sitting with my anger and with my frustration. That could have evolved in so many other ways, but it didn't. It evolved into what it did because I was able to pause and recognize this is because that is. I can change this, which will change that. And for me, when I understand that doing something and doing nothing are both a form of action that will alter whatever happens next, then I suddenly realize that sometimes doing nothing is much more skillful than doing something. So that's the reminder of nothing to do. And then there's the final one, nowhere to go. One of my favorite quotes is by the Japanese Zen monk Ikkyu, who said, having no destination, I am never lost. And this reminds me of the teaching of aimlessness. For me, this goes hand in hand with the teaching of interdependent co-arising. I think we can spend our whole lives being here and always feeling like we need to be there. You know, the expression, the grass is always greener on the other side. But sometimes we cross to that other side and we realize that there is now here. And once again, we face the dilemma of being here and wanting to be there. It's kind of like the story of the monk at the river with a person trying to cross, asking the monk, how do I get to the other side? And the monk simply replies, you are on the other side. You are on the other side. I like that. There's an expression, and it's also the title of a book by John Cabot zinn that says, wherever you go, there you are. And I really like that too. How often do we find ourselves being here, but wishing we were there? And how often do you find the peace and contentment of just being here, in this present place, in this present moment, with this present thought or feeling? That is what I mean by be whatever you already are. It's also like saying, be wherever you already are. And again, this is not an invitation to sit back, to be stuck, or to feel like there's nothing you can do about it. It's a reminder that where you are is always changing. Here and now are always transitioning to there and then. So for me, nowhere to go is an active process where I embrace the here and now with that open curiosity. And I often find that what arises in that process is actually gratitude. You can think of nowhere to go in terms of time. It's like we pause for a moment. It's like a brief intermission. Right now, where I live, the season is changing. The colors of the leaves on the trees are turning red and yellow and brown. And watching this, this change reminds me of the transitory nature of things. Moments can feel ordinary sometimes. They can feel repetitive. And yet moments are always unique in the sense that they arise as something that has never been and something that will never be again. And I think we often make the mistake of measuring the value of a moment by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. And by doing so, we miss the fact that what made that moment so precious was the fact that it was unique. Every moment is a gap. It's the transition between what was and what will be. And I like to imagine that life is like this grand show filled with intricate storylines and plot twists and beautiful scenery, fascinating and interesting characters. And sometimes the show feels a bit overwhelming. And that's when I can hit the pause button. The present moment is like the intermission. It allows me to take just a quick second to marvel at the things that I've seen and felt, or to pause from that overwhelming feeling of, oh, this is too much. It enables me to process what's happened so far and to relax for a moment from the stress and anxiety of trying to anticipate what's going to happen next. There's nowhere to go. You're you're here. And there you have it. The overall expression to be whatever you already are for me is a teaching in and of itself where I'm reminded that there is no one to be, there's nothing to do, and there's nowhere to go. And for a brief moment, I can simply experience the suchness of all things. I can allow myself to settle into the uniqueness of this present moment and this current configuration of reality, only to notice that it's already morphing into whatever's going to be next. These moments of awareness remind me of that parable of the strawberry, which, if you'll recall, is the person running from the tiger, and down below are the alligators, and hanging on this vine, Notices the little mouse gnawing away at the vine. So the inevitable is the end. And the timing, we don't know. That mouse is gnawing away on the vine. How long will the vine last? I don't know. And in that moment, this person looks and sees that strawberry and tastes it. I think that's the important part of the strawberry. Noticing is one thing, but then there's the experiential aspect of it. Tastes the strawberry and says, this is the sweetest, best strawberry I've ever had. And if I pause for a moment, I can ask myself, what can I notice here? And how does it feel if even for just a few seconds, I experience that sensation of nothing needs to be other than how it is. I don't need to be any different than how I am. I can be whatever I already am. That is the essence of what I wanted to communicate in today's podcast episode. Give it a try this week. See what, what arises for you as you think of these things no one to be, nothing to do, and nowhere to go. As always, if you are interested in learning more about Buddhism, you can always check out my book, No-Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, or listen to the first five episodes of the podcast. You can find those on secularbuddhism.com. And also, if you're looking for a community to interact with or to practice with, consider becoming a patron by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community. We have a weekly Zoom call every Sunday, and we also have a a really nice online community where we share asynchronous video, audio, and text, and we can communicate, regardless of what time zone you're in, around different topics, usually centered around the podcast, but also just other Buddhist concepts and, and ideas. All right, well, that's all I have for this podcast episode, but I look forward to sharing more thoughts later in a future episode.